welcome back to the Quill Etc. podcast. Today I'm with Nancy Siegel. Nancy is a professor of psychology and director of the Twin Studies Center at California State University, Fullerton. Dr. Siegel's research has been featured in the New York Times, the Atlantic Monthly, the Wall Street Journal, and of course, here at Quillette. A world-renowned expert on twins, she has appeared on the Today Show, Good Morning America, Dateline, 48 Hours, The Oprah Winfrey Show, and on Australia's own 60 Minutes. Nancy also has a fantastic TEDx speech from 2017, which I highly recommend you watch. I'll link it in the show notes. Her ninth book was just published a few days ago. It's called Gay Fathers, Twin Sons, The Citizenship Case That Captured the World. So Nancy, what can you tell us about the couple at the heart of the story, Andrew and Elad? Sure, I will. So what happened, Zoe, was that Andrew, an American citizen who also held Canadian citizenship, went to Tel Aviv University to get a master's degree, and there he met Elad, who was a student, and the two of them fell in love and married in Canada. Because in 2010, you could not marry in Israel, you still can't, and the United States not 2015. So they married in Canada in 2011, and they had twin boys, Ethan and Aiden. And they did this via surrogacy and egg donation, It turned out that neither father cared who actually contributed the sperm that created each child, but it turned out that the top two embryos were one of mine and one of yours. So they had the same egg donor, but Andrew actually contributed sperm to one and Elad to the other. So the children were really half-siblings, genetically speaking, sharing 25% of their genes. And there is a natural process in reproduction among humans called superfecundation which I'll just briefly explain, then we'll get on to the crux of the mm-hmm. story. So if a woman releases two eggs at the same time, and she has sexual relations with two different men fairly close in time, because there is a three to four day window of opportunity for fertilization to occur, these twins may be fathered by different men. And so what Andrew and Elad did was that they replayed this only through donation of eggs and surrogacy. Now, what happened was that when the boys were four months old in January of 2017, they decided to move to Los Angeles and that would give them access to Andrew's relatives and friends and all of that. But they were given some very rude and very invasive questions by the consular officer at the U.S. consulate in Toronto. Where do these children come from? Who's the father? How does this come to be? And this was information that was only known to them their surrogate, their attorney, and their physician. This was not intended to ever reach their family, but they had no choice and things escalated. People nearby their window overheard conversations. And basically the upshot was they had to have a second DNA test, even though they had the DNA test already, but they had to have a second one that was acceptable by the consulate. And several months later, Aiden, whose father was biologically Andrew was given a U.S. passport and full U.S. citizenship rights. But Ethan, on the other hand, who had been fathered by Elad, the Israeli, was given a tourist visa. And this threatened to tear the family apart and to have each boy treated differently in terms of education, politics. I mean, so many, many things. So these were wonderful parents. Both of them knew what it was like to face adversity and to fight it because they'd both grown up in situations where there was discrimination against gay men. And Elad also had the uh, situation where he was a Sephardic Jew and grew up surrounded by Ashkenazim. So there was discrimination Mm -hmm. there as well. They fought for their child. 
They didn't take the easy way out. Ultimately, they contacted immigration equality in New York City, and they settled this problem for them. I was going to ask you if um, when the men applied for the visas, if they expected that they would have these difficulties, was there even an, an idea in their head that this could happen? It never occurred to them that they would have this kind of difficulty. They prepared a very comprehensive portfolio with their marriage certificates, with papers saying that both were the legal parents of both children. And they had other sorts of information there. They had a complete file, which was reviewed by the consular officer who declared a complete and accepted their fee, which was not returned. So were they the first gay couple to apply for a visa for their children in this situation? This I don't know, but they Mm. certainly did grab headlines because of this. Mm. They're not the first gay couple to have this situation. There have been three other cases that I know of, and I'm sure there were many others, but I know of these three other cases because immigration equality took them all at the same time. They felt that they could make a stronger case if they had them. So these were all transnational couples who had children born outside the United States in which one member of the partnership was a U.S. citizen. But Andrew and Elad's case is especially appealing and especially important, Zoe, because the Mm. boys are twins. In the other cases, they Mm. were single individual children. And while I had an argument Mm. (laughs) or discussion, we'll say, with the immigration equality lawyer that I said the twinship is what really nailed this case and really drew attention to it. He denied that, but it's it's absolutely true. I've done literature searches and law review journals. There were more articles written about them than anyone else because these boys were born in the same country, four minutes apart. They were gestated mm-hmm. you know, for the full eight months or seven months. And and so to, to think of twins, where one is a U.S. citizen, one isn't, where one is going to have full mm-hmm. citizenship, all kinds of rights, the other one would not, is just unthinkable. Mm-hmm. So just to confirm, they they have the same mother genetically. Correct. They have the same mother, different fathers, which makes them 25% on average genetically related. Okay. And you've written a lot about the impacts of twin separation. So what can you tell our listeners a bit about that? What would have happened if the twins had have been separated and one would have got a visa and the other one didn't? First of all, that would have brought a major difference into their lives. And The main point, though, is that they would not have grown up together enjoying each other as twins. You know, twinship is a very celebrated relationship. And I know from my years of work on the Minnesota study of twins writ apart, my work with Chinese adoptees who are indirectly separated through the one-child policy in China, these twin girls, I know that when they meet, they are so sad and angry and bitter at the idea that they were separated because you cannot remake all that lost time. You simply can't. And these boys were young enough that they were together at least until Ethan's tourist visa ran out and the parents were able to keep them together even beyond that. But it would have created a wedge in this wonderful, wonderful family if the twins had had to be separated because it would have separated the parents as well. So I am not at all for separations. And you know, Everyone agrees that twins are special in the sense, you know, twins have a universal fascination for everyone. I've often Mm. asked myself why, and I think it's because we expect individual differences in behavior and we see two people who look and act so much alike. You know, it kind of challenges our beliefs in the way that the world works. Now, Ethan and Aiden look quite different, but they are twins with the same birthday and the same parents, basically. 
and the parents make no distinction between them. We can talk about about cross-parenting, uh, assortative cross-parenting later on if you're interested mm. in that. It's a very concept. I'm very interested. Yeah, but at any rate, the separation would have been devastating at many, many levels. And since the decision has been resolved in the court, do you know if there have been any applications for gay parents since then? Because I, I assume in Australia we have precedent. So, you know, I think in the States you do too. So once this is like a landmark decision, correct? Like now it will be easier for future gay families. Exactly. Exactly. The Foreign Affairs Manual has been changed and in 2022 reflects those changes, wow. not specifying a biological connection to the child if the parents are legally married at the time of the birth. So that's a real plus. Okay. But it still says gestational, and that's a very vague term. Does it mean that you carry the child? Does it mean that you simply contribute the sex cell that gave birth to the child? What does that mean? So the tendency now is to talk about intended parents. You know, if you intend to be the parents of the child and then you're married at the birth. But then I ask myself, what about intention? And you don't get married. Are those children treated any differently? Mm -hmm. So IVF and other reproductive technologies have remade families. And while the intention mm -hmm. was for heterosexual couples, it's had an enormous impact on homosexual couples. And it really does, as you suggest, change things, make things much better for transnational couples with children in the future, but it still is up to the consular officers to interpret these. These are not really rules, they're regulations or guidelines, and mm -hmm. they can be applied differently depending on the discretion of the officers. In reading and researching your book, did you come across other laws or policies that are discriminatory when it comes to um, gay parents and, and their children not being from the same genetic component? Yeah, well, gay parents and the children of gay parents have been discriminated against. People wrongly assume that gay parents don't make good parents. And that is so wrong. Mm -hmm. A lot of data have come out lately to show that gay parents are wonderful, sensitive, loving and caring parents. And the children are great. They don't have any more difficulties than other children. And in fact, they have greater tolerance of individual differences than children mm. born to uh, heterosexual couples. And what's very interesting is that there was a British study that looked at parenting satisfaction among ordinary heterosexual couples, adoptive parents, and people who conceive their children through IVF or other reproductive technologies. And the people who are adoptive parents and the ones with the IVF are the happiest parents, maybe because they really wanted these children and really had to go to bat to get them and pay enormous fees. Whereas heterosexual couples have them the old fashioned way, it's not such a big mm -hmm. deal. And I can tell you that having spent time with this family, you forget, all you see are two dads who love their children and do what all parents do, educate, supervise, entertain, take care of, nurture, it's, it's no different. Hmm. I was surprised to hear that gay marriage isn't legal in Israel because I heard that Tel Aviv in particular was quite a progressive and open city and there was a huge gay community there. That's correct, but Israel doesn't perform gay marriages. They will recognize them if performed hmm. outside the country, but they will not perform them themselves. Right. Okay. So um, what's the legacy that you hope your book will leave? Yeah, there are several legacies. First of all, the fact that gay mothers and fathers, gay couples make 
wonderful parents and they raise mm-hmm. wonderful children. It's very, very important. And I think the importance of twinship, you know, when I first heard about this case, Zoe, the twinship angle was strangely left out of it all. And the idea was simply parent and child relationships. And as a twin researcher and a specialist in the area, I couldn't help but think this was a, a factor that was not used on the parent's behalf to the degree it should have been. I, Because I live uh, close to the lawyers, the immigration equality is based in New York City, but they work pro bono with a law firm in Los Angeles where the families live. And I offered my services to them and they were very grateful, but ultimately the case never went to trial. And so they didn't need an expert witness. But, but I really feel, and I think the lawyer agrees, but just really won't come out and say it, that the twinship angle made an impact. I've heard the families speak publicly and one parents holding one baby, one the other. And you can't help but think that these two children belong together. It's just mm-hmm. the way it is. When we hear about twins being separated, it kind of pulls at our heartstrings. And when we hear about reunions, we celebrate them. So I think mm-hmm. that was a very important aspect here. It doesn't mean that sibship is less important, but I think it underlines twinship and sibship. Sibship. I've never heard that term before. It's one that we use here quite a lot. Right. Well, I'm an only child, so I'm not sure if, do I have any sort of ship, only child ship? (laughs) You have an only ship. (laughs) Um, Okay, so you do talk a little bit about this, I think, at the start of your book in the introduction to it, um, about some of the challenges you faced in publishing the book because there were these ongoing legal issues. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That's correct, yes. I first heard about the case in the Los Angeles Times in 2018, and that was the same year that the case was filed. It was a lawsuit by the DeVosh Banks family against the U.S. State Department and then Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Now, I immediately contacted the lawyers at Immigration Equality and spoke to their public affairs officers. And I was told that while the lawsuit is pending, we do not allow people to speak to journalists, filmmakers, nobody, because they're too afraid that something will come out that might jeopardize the case. Mm And I understood and respected that, but I had a worry that it was such an appealing case because it had so many timely themes Mm. to it. Somebody else was going to get to that book before me. So what I did was I emailed the sister of Andrew and I kept it quiet, but I emailed Mm. her and she was all on board for my doing a book. And I'm sure she told her brother and her brother-in-law, I'm sure of that. And so I did not contact them the entire time, but I followed the case very carefully in the newspapers. And then I remember October 2020, I was having breakfast and there was the newspaper saying the case had settled. Now the the government could still appeal every time it's settled twice, actually, every time it settles, there's a 60 day appeal. And the government has this way of appealing on day 59. So they weren't completely in the clear, but they were still able to talk to me at that point. And then I think it was in the summer of 2021 when they finally got a notice from the law firm in Los Angeles saying that the case is closed forever. They never have to worry. Ethan is a full U.S. citizen. That was the end of it. So I met the family Mm. in December of 2021. I met them in their home and it it was just a delightful experience. They were very open, very uh, forthcoming with information, very loving toward their children who interrupted us every five minutes. But the thing that (laughs) most impressed me about parents was how they were not interested in the easy way out which would have been a quick solution, but not a long-term one, and would not have helped other families. As I said, both of these men had faced discrimination during the growing up years, and they knew what it was like to fight, and they were willing to take that on. And that immigration equality 
there was a whole media program crafted for them where they were expected to do public speaking, radio shows, television programs, and their whole story was going to be out there. And everyone was going to know the relationship of each dad to each son, but they were willing to do that. And it was worth it because now the family is completely safe and protected and they don't have to worry about either child. That's great. Do you think there are, like, what other changes do you think need to be made in terms of policy, not just relating to same-sex couples, but just heterosexual couples? Do you think there are some changes that need to be made when it comes to immigration and paternity? Well, I don't know the extent to which heterosexual couples who have children outside of the U.S. and bring them back are questioned. I do know several cases, which I cite in the book, where they used a surrogate and the surrogate was not American and the husband was not American. The wife was, but she didn't carry the baby. The baby was unrelated to her and they were not questioned in the slightest. But I think that where the real changes need to be made are for the same-sex couples. I think they need to strip the word gestational out of there and just talk about intended parentage, legal parentage. That is what's really critical. You know, we have to realize that human nature is such that we can thrive under many, many different circumstances. The the traditional nuclear families, same-sex couple families, um, orphanages, collectives. I mean, there are many, many things that support normal human development as long as you have the basic needs of nutrition, safety, and nurturance. And so this is just one of many different arrangements that works out just fine. And I know that there are going to be people who reject it at a personal level. And that's fine. I'm not going to tell anybody how to think. But I think that what you have to do is allow people to be themselves and to live their lives and to love who they want without any kind of restrictions. And as I mentioned to someone the other day, and I mentioned in the book, that I've never heard of a gay movement against heterosexual couples to strip them of their rights. It's always the other direction. Have you, have you always been interested in LGBT rights, or was it just this story that captivated you? Well, I've always been interested in LGBT rights, but it was not my main focus. What drew me to this case, of course, was the twinship. And in the course Mm -hmm. of focusing on that, I became very interested in the policies the government used and what the life histories of these two men were. I begin the book, actually, with the life history of Andrew, move on to the life history Mm -hmm. of Elad, and then bring them together at Tel Aviv University and then go on to their Mm. having children and the difficulties they experienced after that. Because I wanted to really bring out the humanity behind the horror that these men had lived through. You know, I don't think people really appreciate that these these were caring, caring people who were fighting a battle. And the fact that once the boys were in the U.S., prior to Ethan's getting a passport, the parents would go off to work every day and the children who were two and three were in the care of a nanny. And they worried that maybe the immigration officers would come and snatch poor Ethan out of their house. They've been known to do that in the past for other children. And this is when children were being put into cages at the border in the United States a few years ago. So they told us that they kept their telephones right by their desk. And if anything came through, they'd be home in a moment's notice. Can you imagine parents leaving their house every day, not knowing if their child would be safely at home when they got there? It would be terrifying. So how old are the boys now? The boys are about to turn seven in September. Okay. So do they have much of an understanding about what what their family's been through? I don't think they have the understanding now. But Mm -hmm. what is really wonderful is that 
the parents are keeping a mm -hmm. Google diary for them and tracking all the events and things. And the boys will be able to read all about that when they're older and they'll realize just how much their parents fought for them. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, and you wrote the book quite quickly. Is this one of the fastest books that you've ever produced? Well, it, I wrote that fairly quickly because I wanted to make it tied as closely as possible to the settlement of the case. But it's not the one I wrote the fastest, although it's among that. I had a book that came out last March called The Twin Children of the Holocaust, Stolen Childhood mm -hmm. in the Wilderness of Life. I think you mentioned that at the beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. had fairly mm -hmm. text. It had mostly, it was mostly an annotated photo collection of pictures that I took in 1985 at the 40th anniversary mm -hmm. reunion of the Holocaust twins, the Mangala twins at Auschwitz-Birkenau. Mm -hmm. So that was probably a little faster. Mm -hmm. But this book, I love to blend science and human interest. I think it's just a wonderful way of informing and educating people. And it's entertaining at the same time. And I'm working on a proposal right now for a 10th book. I'm on leave this whole academic wow. year. So I'll write that one quickly too. Can you tell us what it's going to be about or it's a surprise? Um, I think I'll keep it a surprise for now. I think I will. Okay. Oh, how exciting. Can you give us an update on what's currently happening in the field of twin research? Yeah. Well, twin research really remains very vibrant, very informative, very engaging. Mm -hmm. And I'll just lay out the basic um, logic of the twin method, which is that you have identical twins who share all their genes, having split from a single fertilized egg. You've got fraternal twins who result when a woman releases two eggs that are fertilized by the same gentleman. And so you've got one set of twins that share all their genes and one set that share mm -hmm. half on average. And so greater behavioral or physical resemblance in the identicals is consistent with the genetic influence on the behavior. Now, I would say that there are probably two or three trends in twin research now. One is that many, many more behaviors are being subjected to genetic analysis, such as religiosity, political attitudes, social attitudes, COVID susceptibility, how much you watch wow. television and play on the internet. All these kinds of things are fascinating. Mm -hmm. And who would think they have genetic components to them? But of course, mm. nothing is all genetic. Everything has an environmental influence as well. And in the field of molecular genetics, with the unraveling of the human genome, people are looking at uh, different genes in twin populations. And Identical twins, as it turns out, don't share all the genes exactly the same. There are point mutations, what we call de novo mutations that can happen before birth or after, which might make some for some differences, but we don't know really how many twins undergo that and what they might mean. Hmm. So people are trying to unravel the meaning of some of these things and figure out the configuration of genes that underlie certain behaviors. So that's, that's very interesting work. That's not the kind of work that hmm. I do. I much prefer to be in the lab with twins because twins just mm. tell you so much by acting naturally. All they have to do is be themselves. Mm. And to me, I've seen it a million times and I just love it. It's, it's, whether they're identical or fraternal, they have a whole story to tell. They're all unique twist on human nature. Yeah. And we love to hear their stories. And Twins always seem to be very happy to share their stories and very happy that they're twins. I was wondering if you've ever met a set of twins who didn't like being a twin. Oh, of course, of course. They're, the yeah. vast majority do. But of course, there are twins who are fierce competitors and feel that the twin has overwhelmed their individuality. There are fraternal twins who have very different interests and are estranged from one another. So 
In fact, I was on the Oprah Winfrey show one time and I was told that the program was about twin relationships, which was fine. But when I got there, I learned that it was about twins who hated each other. And I was a little nervous. What I thought to myself in the green room, I've got to handle this. And so I thought, this is not typical. I have to emphasize the atypicality of this kind of situation. But yes, this can happen. You know, they're just like ordinary siblings can have their differences. Twins can have them as well. But it is the hmm. exception, not the rule. And I will say that I've often found that even when twins are somewhat estranged from one another, they're still enmeshed. This this happened to me at a book signing. A man came up to me and said that he wanted two copies of a book, one for himself and one for his estranged twin. So I asked him why he was buying one for his brother. And he said, well, you know, we're we're involved. We don't talk, but we're involved. See, so that, that gives you another clue that it's not cut off entirely mm. in most cases. And do we know if the rates of twins being born is going up or staying the same or? Well, it went up dramatically from 1980 till about 2021 or two. It went up from about 160 births to 132 in Western nations. And the reason for that was the fact that women were delaying the childbearing years for educational, occupational reasons, Mm -hmm. and older Mm -hmm. women have a higher tendency to release two eggs at one time. It's kind of a human Mm -hmm. reproductive error, but a nice one. And also... Also with IVF and other reproductive techniques, uh, that also ups the fraternal twinning rate. But what many people don't know is that it also ups the identical twinning rate, not as dramatically. But when you micro-manipulate eggs in the laboratory, it may sometimes enhance the probability of division. Now, we also have better ways of managing pregnancies because twin births and triplet births are high risk, but we're better able to detect Mm -hmm. them and to manage them. So Twinning did go up dramatically until about 2021 or 2022, but now it's stabilizing. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if um, fraternal twins or identical twins, if their births were carried more risk. Identical twins have a greater risk than fraternal twins. And the reason for that is that a good number of them develop what's called the fetal transfusion syndrome, where they develop a mutual circulation system such that one literally bleeds into the other creating differences in size, in health, in strength. And Mm -hmm. if it's not very severe, it's probably not a big deal, but it can be very, very dangerous. And there are some laser treatments that can affect it or treat it preterm. Fraternal twins are not subjected Mm -hmm. to this kind of thing. So their prenatal situation is a little bit easier than that of identical twins. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So why do embryos divide sometimes? Is this a genetic thing? That is a great question. We know so much about twinning, more than we ever did before, but we really don't know what causes that egg to divide or that fertilized egg to divide and why it happens to some women, not others. Now, there may be a genetic effect in some families, and I say that because there are families that just have multiple sets of identical twins, like this woman with the quadruplets. She had two sets at the same time. And there are populations around the world, in India, in Iran, and in Brazil, where there are very small communities with multiple twin sets that are identical. In fact, I've been a consultant to twin projects in Brazil, and I'm going back again in October. In the south of Brazil, there was a twin that I met, and she has five generations of identical twins in her family, which is more than I've ever heard in any family. So there has to be something genetic Mm. in some family. And I wonder if these cultures have myths about these twins. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if they do. 
There is a street in Cuba, in fact, called the Street of Twins. And when I was in Cuba wow. a number of years ago, I went to the Street of Twins, and it's both identical and fraternal twins, but they all they just seem to pop up on this one street. Some people feel that it's a function of a certain tree and the fruit of the tree. I can't remember the name of it now, but, they, but some people believe it's that mm. reason. I, I don't really think so. In Nigeria, among the Yoruba tribe, they have the world's second largest twin frequency in the world. And wow. the women... Second two? Oh, the first one is Benin. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. Nigeria for many years had the world's highest twinning record. It recently was taken over by Benin. Mm. I know that among the Yoruba tribe in Nigeria, in Western Nigeria, they have large consumption of the white potato yam. And it has estrogenetic properties to it. And so some people feel that may be part of it. It may be, it may be also the genetic composition of the women involved, but they have very high twinning rates and they have a whole culture that wraps around the Aruba. They have rituals and they have certain names you give to the firstborn and the secondborn. So if you're a twin in Nigeria and you're firstborn, you and all the other firstborn twins have the same name as just the secondborn. Wow. So they're, they're sort of honored there and artists are very keen to create artworks, uh, a- amulets that capture the twinship theme. And I heard in a previous podcast you done, you said that women who are vegetarians tend to have less of a chance of having twins. Is that correct? Yeah, that seems to be. That's one finding that I've seen. I've not seen it replicated, but it's conceivable that perhaps they have not enough protein, not enough fat in the diet, because it takes a, a, a lot of that to support a pregnancy and a twin pregnancy in general. So that may be something that would reduce twinning rates in, in some women. Hmm. Now with so many people doing their own genetic testing, like I, I paid 23andMe, there are a number of companies, Ancestry.com, to um, analyze my genome. How do you think this will affect twins in the future? Well, I can tell you that it's affected twins greatly. It's brought some twins together who had absolutely no knowledge of being mm. a twin. In an amazing story, there was one member of a twin pair who put her DNA into the bank and the other one's daughter did. And so when the daughter got her report, she was told about this woman that she shared half her genes with, which was preposterous. And it turned out that the two were identical twins, her mother and this other woman. And then not just the DNA banks, but there was a woman here in Los Angeles that I got quite friendly with. And she put a video of herself up on the internet. She was an aspiring actress. And it was seen by a friend of her twin sisters in England. And they looked so much alike and eventually got in touch. And I arranged for DNA testing. They were celebrating before the DNA test results came in. I said, don't you dare. Let's get the DNA first. And of course, they were identical twins. Same birthday. They were from South Korea, adopted Mm -hmm. by a US family Mm -hmm. and a French family. So that was amazing. So the point is that the internet has brought twins together. And and in fact, mm-hmm. you mentioned Liberally Divided that talked about the triplets. Well, there's a case in there also of Michelle and Allison who met only because their DNA was in that bank. And they turned out mm-hmm. to be part of the very highly unethical study done by the Louise Wise Agency and the Child Developmental Center by researchers, Viola um, mm-hmm. Bernard and Dr. Peter Neubauer. So they never, mm-hmm. ever would have known about being a twin if it had been for that. And you write about the Wise found, Foundation, or what are they called, sorry, the Wise? The Louise Wise Adoption Services. In the 1960s, mm-hmm. they were the premier adoption service for Jewish families wishing to adopt Jewish babies. 
And so if you were a single Jewish mother who was pregnant, you would go to their facility on Long Island and they would provide room and board for you and you'd have your baby. Well, there were certainly mothers who gave up twins. And uh, Viola Bernard, who was a psychiatric consultant for the agency, had a highly misguided notion that twins and triplets were better off being adopted separately to avoid identity problems and to uh, avoid parental overburdening. And so these twins were put into separate families. Their adoptive parents were not told. And they met as adults mostly through mistaken identity. But keep in mind that only identicals can meet that way. Fraternals usually don't because they don't look so much exactly. alike. And Allison and Michelle never mm-hmm. would have met at the, the data bank. Mm-hmm. So I, w- when the movie came out, Three Identical Strangers, people came up to me and said, you've got to write the book. And I was a little hesitant because I knew that Peter Neubauer and Viola Bernard, who were then deceased, had a lot of supporters. I knew that it would be difficult to get information, but I managed to get it. And I'm very, very glad I did it because I grew as an author and as a scholar by putting myself in a situation Mm. where I had to really dig to get information. I had to learn Mm. that, you know, some people will speak off the record or some people will speak on the record, but anonymously. So I learned all about that stuff. Mm -hmm. And Mm. the book actually, uh, I wrote it during COVID and that one took a while. That's my longest book. That's over 500 pages. But again, it's it's science, but human interest and and every Mm -hmm. twin story Mm. is in Mm. Would you say it's your favorite book? Do you have a favorite? My favorite book is the one I'm writing at the time. <laughs> so it was for a mm. while, but I moved on to the Holocaust book mm. and I moved on to mm. Gay Fathers and Sons, which I have to say right now mm. was probably my favorite. And if people haven't yet read your books, do you have a, a recommendation of where to start? Is there one that gives you a sort of intro? Well, those would be my earliest books. There's a book called Entwined Lives. And the research is still fine. It's just that it needs updating. That came out in 1999 in hardcover, 2000 in paperback. Mm-hmm. And Twine Lives covers virtually every twin-related topic there is. And then I wrote a book after that called Indivisible by Two, The Lives of Extraordinary Twins, which was kind of an Oliver Sacks book, you know, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, tales that combine human interest and science. And I go into many, many cases there. I have twins raised apart, and I have twins adopted from China, and a pair of twins where one transgendered and the other one did not. And a twins where one had a baby for the other one. So all kinds of very interesting and informative cases. But for people who have a little knowledge of twinship, I would say my last three books, Deliberately Divided, The Twin Children of the Holocaust, and Gay Fathers, Twin Sons, would be great. Cool. And you were in Australia just last month, is that correct? I was in Australia just last month in your Mm -hmm. city of Melbourne. And the reason I went there, Zoe was that I had gone, you know, as I said earlier, with the twin survivors of the Holocaust of the Mengele experiments. Mm -hmm. And I stayed in touch with one of the twin pairs, Annetta and Stefa. Annetta is surviving. Stefa passed away a few years ago, but Annetta, beautiful, beautiful woman, is 99 years old now. Mm. And I got her into the Guinness Book of Records as the oldest survivor of those experiments. But the reason I mention it is that she wrote a book and her son sent me an invitation to the book launch that they were having in Melbourne. It was going to be the big Jewish center, and they never expected me to come. But I had the time, and I was drawn to this event like a magnet. I knew I had to go. It seemed crazy to fly 18 hours each way for a two-hour event, but I'm not sorry. You know, there are times in life when you have to do certain things, and you can make a list of pros and cons, and the cons outweigh the pros, but your heart and your mind tell, are together on this. And they tell you you got to do it. And I am thrilled that I went. 
I'm just thrilled that I went. It was such a meaningful event and I got to speak and address all the friends and, and relatives who were there and meet the family. It was wonderful. Beautiful. And it reminds me that today is the 97th birthday of Olga Horak, who is my, my boyfriend's grandma who survived Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen. Oh. Yeah, she she writes about um, Mengele in her um, memoir as well. Yeah, luckily I, she I didn't have to meet him. But uh, Yes, I would like to know about that memoir. I'm very interested in anything okay. I can get my hands on. I'll send it yeah, to you. If you can send me that on email. That'd be great. great. And where can people find your books and your, your work? Should they go to your website? Right. My books are all on Amazon.com and on virtually every other online bookstore. My website, and I'll say it slowly, is drnancysiegeltwins.org. And that's simply drnancysiegeltwins.org with no grammar or anything in between the doctor and the twins. Okay. Well, so nice to talk to you, Nancy. Thank you, Zoe.